0: Symbols are important, aren't they? They communicate important truths to us and they draw us together as people. Imagine you fell into a deep sleep and when you woke up, you saw stockings full of presents and heard carols being sung. You would know instantly that it was Christmas. The celebration of the birth of Jesus, the greatest present ever given, announced by a chorus of angels. Now imagine you fell asleep again, and this time when you woke up, you saw a big pile of chocolate eggs. Again, you would know instantly that it was Easter. The celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. The eggs representing the stone rolled away from the tomb, and new life emerging. The symbols are important. They have specific meaning. They evoke the defining story of our faith. And as one great family, we love to gather around these symbols and celebrate all that God has done for us. Now imagine you fell asleep one more time. And this time when you woke up, you saw uh, some stockings on the mantelpiece. But instead of being full of presents, they were full of chocolate eggs. What on earth would you make of that? You would think it very odd. But you would probably also assume that it was deliberate. Because these symbols are so clear, so powerful, you can't mix them up by accident. Someone must have done this deliberately, and they must be trying to make a point. If that is what you thought, you would be absolutely right. And you would be on the road to discovering what we have in our story today. Let me explain. When Jesus entered Jerusalem for the final time in his earthly life, the event that we frequently refer to as Palm Sunday, there are two sets of Jewish symbols that come crashing together. The first set of symbols are those relating to the Passover. This is the festival that was mentioned in verse 12. John's already named it at the beginning of this chapter and at the end of the last one. And I'm sure those of you here this evening will know that the Passover festival celebrated the liberation of Israel from slavery in Egypt 1,400 years before this event. I'm sure you know the story. They were enslaved. They had been treated really badly. They cried out for help. God heard their cry and he sent Moses to confront Pharaoh. At first, Pharaoh kept refusing to let the people go. God sent nine plagues. He still refused. Eventually, he sent the last tenth plague, the angel of death that passed over the land. And only those houses that had the blood painted on the doors survived losing their firstborn son. The following morning, Egypt wakes up to great mourning and and horror and wailing. And Pharaoh finally allows the people to go. The years of suffering, they are free. And God then leads them through the wilderness to the promised land where they finally enjoy peace. That is the story of the Passover. And it was a really important story to the Jews. In fact, it was their story. Their defining story, it told them that they were God's people and God deeply loved them. So every year when Passover was celebrated, a great festival was held. Thousands of people from all over the country would travel to the capital. Historians have discovered evidence that the population of Jerusalem at that time was about 50,000 people. But in Passover week, it more than doubled to 120,000 people. There were so many people, the city just couldn't contain them all. They spilled out onto the surrounding hillsides. It's a bit like Islet in Face but 10 times bigger. Now, like our Christmas and Easter, Passover has a lot of symbols that goes with it. I'm sure you might know of the the sacrificing of a lamb and a special meal. But there is also the singing of some very specific songs, a bit like our Christmas carols. In the book of Psalms, there is a collection called the Hallel. In our English translations, they are Psalm 113, through to Psalm 118. And these psalms celebrate God saving his people as he did first in Egypt all those years ago. And every year at the Passover festival, the Jews love to gather together and sing those songs. And that is exactly what we find in our reading, isn't it? What are the crowds doing as they line the roadside? They are singing Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now Hosanna very simply means save us. Save us now. It's it's a cry, yearning for liberation. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is a direct quote from Psalm 118 the final psalm of this Jewish halal. It is a psalm all about God triumphing over his enemies, setting his people free, and the promise that God would do it again if his people ever found themselves in that situation. So are we beginning to get a feel for what's going on here? A huge number of people have massed together To celebrate God setting them free from their enemies. They're singing propaganda songs. Songs of liberation. As each pilgrim arrives in Jerusalem. The city is slowly filling up with more and more expectation. The Jewish people yearn to be free again. This time free from their Roman overlords. Perhaps this is the year that God will do it. Every year at Passover time, Jerusalem simmered with this political and religious tension. Just one small act of disruption could explode violently. Everyone was on tenterhooks. But here's the thing. Alongside the symbols of Passover, there's another set of symbols thrown in as well. It's a bit like finding Easter eggs in Christmas stockings. Something very deliberate is happening here. Let me explain. Alongside their singing of Hosanna and Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, these Passover songs, the Jewish pilgrims also sing something else, don't they? What does it say in verse 13? Blessed is the king of Israel. Blessed is the king of Israel. And at the same time as they say those words, they are waving palm branches. Now this is from a very different Jewish festival. The song, Blessed is the king, and the waving of palm branches comes from Hanukkah. Now, this isn't the right time of year for Hanukkah. Hanukkah is a winter festival. This is uh, in the spring summer. We talked about Hanukkah a a few weeks ago when we saw Jesus enter the temple when Hanukkah was being celebrated. Hanukkah comes from that time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It celebrates a man called Judas Maccabeus leading a rebellion against the Greeks, defeating the Greek king, And his stunning victory leads to them rededicating the temple back to God. And the people decide that Judas is going to be their king. And on that occasion, they waved palm branches and they shouted in celebration, Blessed is the new king of Israel. Blessed is the king of Israel. And from that moment on, the palm branches became like this symbol of Jewish national pride. A bit like the rose in England or the dragon in Wales or the rampant lion in Scotland. I hope we're beginning to get the point. Hanukkah is the celebration of everything a Jewish king should be. A Jewish king courageously takes on the enemy, promotes the true worship of God, leads the people to victory. A great Jewish king makes Israel the greatest nation in the world. Now when the crowd deliberately start mixing these Hanukkah symbols with Passover symbols, they are making a very clear declaration. They hope that Jesus is going to set them free and defeat Rome and make them great again. And remember, there are 120,000 people who are beginning to sing this and believe this. There is whipping up into a great fervor. What we have here is a powder keg of explosive emotion. Now, there's one other thing I'd like us to notice before we go on. Did you see in verse 13 that rather unremarkable statement that the crowd with their palm branches went out to meet Jesus? It seems like something of nothing, doesn't it? But it's not. In the ancient world, a crowd would go out of the city and line the roadside to welcome back a conquering king. In those days, the hero would ride into their hometown in this marvellous procession with all his army behind him and all the spoils of war behind that. And the crowd would give this triumphal welcome. The Romans did this all the time. Caesar would march back into Rome. The crowds would line the way after one of his great battle victories. So when the Romans see the Jews doing the exact same thing to greet Jesus into Jerusalem, they know what's going on. The Jews here are trying to crown a new king, a warrior king. They are preparing for revolution. And in the Roman mind, this would need to be stamped out very quickly. You can imagine the commanders in the barracks hearing what's going on and leaping up for their swords and their chariots. The Romans didn't tolerate rival kings to Caesar. So this is the background and it's really important we understand this if we're going to get this story. The Jews have crashed Passover and Hanukkah together in the attempt to name Jesus as their new warrior king. The Romans at this moment are on tenterhooks, one wrong move, and the army is going to come crashing in. Jesus is now in a very difficult position. He's got to do something, hasn't he? He's got to calm the zeal of the crowd. He's got to quieten this nationalistic tub thumping before the army come. He wants the Roman army to stay in the barracks. And of course, Jesus manages to do it, but in an ingenious way. He creates a new dramatic symbol of his own. This year, we witnessed firsthand a royal coronation. On the 6th of May, we watched Charles become king. We saw gold carriages. We saw mighty stallions. We saw countless soldiers with their rifles and their gleaming uniforms. But what we definitely did not see was a donkey. Far less King Charles himself riding the donkey. Donkeys are not royal animals. They are not animals of war. They are not quick, they are not strong, they are stately, they are strong, they're not stately, they're not impressive in any way. They are quiet, peaceful animals. You know, donkeys are so gentle that some farmers will put a donkey in with a wild horse in the same stable to calm it down. In Jesus' day, donkeys were the animal of the poor. They used them to work their fields and do menial tasks no king in jesus day or in our own day would choose to ride a donkey let alone a young donkey not even fully grown it would be humiliating to them and yet our reading tells us in verse 14 that jesus deliberately found a donkey to ride And he knows exactly what he's doing. He's trying to make a very important point. He's not denying that he is king. But he is a king like no other. And in the coming days he will act like no other. And of course Jesus has deliberately chosen a donkey for another reason as well. He knows that some of the Jews there that day would start to think about Zechariah. The prophecy that we read at the beginning of our service. Now, bearing in mind the national hysteria that's flying around, bearing in mind the whole of Jerusalem at this moment is on the cusp of some sort of revolution, listen again to what Zechariah says, because it's the complete opposite of what the crowd want. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots and the war horses, and the battle bow will be broken, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. Can you see? Jesus is king all right. But entirely different to any other king, and entirely different to what the crowd that day were hoping for. He is defined by humility and gentleness. His gift is the gift of life, not the gift of conquest. He's not going to raise up an army of chariots and swords and bows, rather, well, he's going to make a way for them all to be put away forevermore. His reign will be one of peace. And freedom, a peace not just for Israel, but for the whole world. A peace that drives out fear. Do not be afraid, said Zechariah. Can you see the crowds have misunderstood? Jesus hasn't come to lead a war against Rome. He's come to defeat the far greater enemies of evil and sin and death. He's not come to make Israel great again, in the words of a certain politician. He's come to bless the world. And yes, he is king and he'll start a kingdom. But it's going to begin in the most costly way imaginable by him laying down his life. When Jesus climbed up onto the back of that donkey, he was pleading with the crowds to open their eyes longing for them to remember the words that he had spoken. He was trying to correct their misunderstandings before it was too late. I imagine many in the crowd that day were greatly disappointed when they saw Jesus on a donkey. All of their expectations would have suddenly fallen flat. But little did they know that Jesus was saving their lives. John tells us in verse 16 that even the disciples don't get this yet. They haven't worked it all out. And they would only fully understand after Jesus' death and resurrection, when the full scale of his victory would become clear. For now, they're bamboozled like the crowds. Jesus is king, but somehow in a way they can't put their finger on yet. Our passage ends with something rather wonderful. It gives us a hint as to why it is so much better for us that Jesus is the type of king that he is and not the nationalistic conqueror for Israel that the crowds had hoped for. The Pharisees have watched everything that has taken place and they're dismayed by it. They've watched the crowds going over to Jesus and they're bemused. They've done everything they could to discredit Jesus and they have failed. So they say out loud, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. What incredible irony there is in those words. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Unbeknown to them, they have hit the nail on the head. Exactly. Jesus hasn't come to win a battle just for Israel. He's come to win the whole world back to God. And this is what John has strived to point out again and again in his gospel. Who can forget those words of John 3? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Later in John 10, as the good shepherd, Jesus said that his task was to bring in the sheep from the other hills to join the pen of Israel. In John 11, John speaks of Jesus gathering God's scattered children from all over the world and uniting them as one big family. This has always been the plan. Yes, Jesus was a Jew and the king of the Jews, and he fulfilled all of God's promises to the Jewish people. But in doing so, he throws open the doors of God's kingdom to the world. Of course, the Pharisees that day had no clue what they just said. But finally, they've said something right. Jesus has come to make peace and peace for all the world. So how are we to respond to that? Here's a picture of George Verwer who died recently and uh, Riona was at his memorial service. A man who had a vision for taking Jesus to the world. I hope understanding uh, this passage now that we will see that Jesus is everything this world needs. He is the Passover lamb, our rescuer and liberator, our forgiver of our sin. He is the Hanukkah king, But he is king of the whole world, and one day all will bow before him. And this news is so good, it must be spread far and wide, in word and action. And the only way that we can do that is by trying to act like the servant king that Jesus was. Making peace where we can, improving life wherever we find it broken, trying to build the kingdom of God on earth and one day that great task will be complete and we will rest with our king for eternity and when that day comes we will find that we are part of a multitude from every nation of the world